but before we dive into anything, let me open us up in prayer. <clears throat> our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, first and foremost, that you are our God, that we are your people. We thank you for this, uh, this very soggy morning that you have uh, created for us by your, your sovereign hand. We pray that you would be with us in our study of the new covenant, that we would learn more of you and your divine grace and of your son, Jesus Christ, who has paid for this covenant in his blood. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. All right, so um, does everybody have, well, I guess Pastor's still working on the handouts. Does everybody have a way to read the answer? We're going to reread the question again. I'll wait till Pastor's done with the handouts. So again, we're in question 35. I'll read the question. Let's read the answer again together just so it's fresh in our minds. <clears throat> and uh, Sam specifically told me, Sam Miller, to speak up because he's listening. Uh, he's, he's out on the border this morning. So Sam, if you're listening, this is for you, brother. So how was the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited... The same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. All right, very good. So um, we are picking up in the administration of the sacraments. Last week we looked at the preaching of the word. So I'm not going to lie to you, I had to kind of fight the urge when I was writing this lecture to not really go down the rabbit hole when it came to the sacraments. Um, uh, make no mistake, we're going to look at this in a little bit, in, in some detail, um, but the catechism has its own set of questions and answers when it comes to the sacraments. So this won't be like super theologically heavy, um, it's going to really come from more uh, a covenantal perspective, uh, if that makes sense. But let's just jump into the first one. Uh, the first one, the answer references is baptism. So as I said, the goal is going to be to keep more of a covenantal focus here. Um, like I said, there'll come a time in our catechism where we'll talk about the, the mode of baptism and its significance, all that good stuff, right? I, I've, got, I've got notes and books and lectures. It's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your socks off, okay? Um, these... These things are relevant to covenant theology, for sure, uh, but again, that's for another lecture, uh, or as my daddy used to say, it's, for, it's a story for another time. But, just so we're all operating uh, with the same understanding, okay, let me, let me read the Westminster Larger Catechism's definition of baptism, okay? Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood, and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church, and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So, what I want us to stay focused on for now is the covenantal relationship between circumcision and baptism. Okay. Baptism is the means of grace believers receive in the new covenant. It is the sign and seal of the covenant union. 
It's the blessing of being related okay, to the Father through union with Christ in the fellowship of the Spirit. Okay? Baptism is triune. Okay? <clears throat> and the sign certainly does change from circumcision to baptism. Okay? Paul uh, makes that very clear in Colossians, and we'll look at that. But how do we understand these great truths in the light of the Old Covenants? And more specifically, how do we understand baptism in the light of circumcision? What, what are the parallels? Okay, because understanding the theological connection between the two will slowly help bridge the, that gap between that great Pedo credo baptism divide. Okay. But in order to do that, we have to, we have to kind of resurrect our knowledge of, of circumcision a little bit. Okay? See, I told you, you can't forget this stuff. Okay. Turn with me to Genesis 17 in your, in your Bibles. Just going to uh, refresh our knowledge and some scripture here a little bit. Just want to read a couple passages out of Genesis 17. Let's start in uh, verse 9. <clears throat> so Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Skip down to verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money, I'm sorry, bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, I wanted to reread this so, again, we have this fresh in our minds, okay? Because this language finds two very significant New Testament parallels. First, flip with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. <clears throat> Here, Peter is preaching his, his famous Pentecost sermon, and he's addressing a large crowd of Jews. Okay? At the end of his sermon, he reaches his culminating point there in verse 36. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter says, Jesus is the Lord and Messiah who was put to death by the chief priests, leaders, and you, Jews. Okay? And in verse 37, they're affected by this sermon. Right? They say, brothers, what shall we do? Right? And look at Peter's response in verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, did you catch that? Now this is important in verse 39. Peter is paraphrasing the language from Genesis 17. Specifically Genesis 17, uh, 7 and Genesis 17, 12. 
if you think way back, okay, I mentioned this idea of a threefold promise, right? In Genesis, the promise is to you and to your offspring and to those who dwell in your tents, okay? Here, Peter says the promise is to you, your children, and those who are far off. And the all who are far off are, is a reference to the Gentiles, okay? The very same Gentiles Peter was preaching, saving faith to in Acts chapter 10. Now, for my Baptist friends out there who are listening, okay, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're conflating the covenants. You're conflating the covenants, okay? This promise isn't the Abrahamic covenant. This promise is, is for the Holy Spirit, well, exegetically, yes, you're right, you're right, but that isn't the whole story, though, is it? Who wrote Acts? Luke, who is a very close associate and friend of Paul. Ah, so Luke's theology is Pauline. Well, in that case, that's good to know. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Well, start, we'll start in verse 13. <clears throat> verse 14 is going to be our focus. Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And listen carefully. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the blessings and the promises that God made to Abraham come to us and are fulfilled in Christ. And what is the blessing? It's the Holy Spirit. Put another way, the Holy Spirit is what God promised to Abraham. It's what He promised to Abraham in the covenant that He made with him. So yes, the promise Peter is talking about is the Holy Spirit. But it's also true that the Spirit is the promise that God made in the covenant with Abraham. So, Peter is saying that the Abrahamic promise of the Spirit has come even to the Gentiles. Therefore, repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of sins, for the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off. Now, look, this isn't some sneaky, presbo, sleight of hand, okay? Just to get Baptists on our side. I'm just reading the text, okay? Although, if any of my Baptist friends out there are listening, let's get a cup of coffee over that one. <clears throat> but seriously, the goal is to simply show the relationship between baptism and circumcision, now, here's our second New Testament text that relates directly to Genesis 17. Uh, flip over to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. 
Now, there really is a lot that we could say about this text. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12. But my goal is, is to keep us focused just on this, this topic here, okay? Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, notice the parallels between the two main clauses in verses 11 and 12. Okay? You have, in him you were circumcised. Okay, verse 11, that's the first one. And then having been buried with him in baptism in verse 12. Okay, there's your two. This is Paul making a clear theological connection between baptism and circumcision. He's saying you were circumcised in Christ in your baptism. Now, some people are going to actually argue that Paul is talking about a, a, spirit, a spiritual circumcision here. Um, honestly, it, I don't think it really matters. Well, wait, what? How, how, how can it not matter? Because in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses is already telling you there's a, there's a difference between a circumcision of the flesh and of the heart. Okay? Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Okay, circumcision was always meant to be an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. Um, you know, every, every time I meet a, uh, a former Reformed Baptist, uh, I, I always like to ask them. I always, I always love talking to those guys. What, what finally did it for you? What finally brought you over to the dark side? And... Um, because uh, I generally like to know. You know, I like to, I like to hear their arguments. I like to, to know how they work through those things. What was the, what was the argument that helped clarify things for you? Because it's always different for each person. <clears throat> but one particular Baptist, or former Baptist, said it was, it was really understanding that aspect of it. Um, that circumcision was always meant to represent a circumcised heart. Um, and so, I mean, sometimes it's just the simple things. He, under, he, was, he was a very smart guy. Understood all the covenant theology. Everything made sense to him. It was just that little bit right there. Okay, so allow me, if I may, to summarize at this point a very simple topic, infant baptism, for you and just kind of put a little bow on it, okay? I heard someone say uh, infant baptism really boils down to three questions. Three basic questions, okay? Are we going to baptize babies? Well, then you need to be able to answer these questions, okay? And we, I think we as Presbyterians need to understand these things. I'm sure a lot of you have already worked through this stuff in your head. You guys are probably smarter than I am when it comes to this stuff. Um, but I think it's, it's something we need to stay fresh on, we need to go over. Um, because there is no verse that says... Go thee therefore and baptize babies, right? We would love a verse that says that. Or, or thou shalt not baptize babies, right? Because if there was, we would do it, right? Everyone would love a verse like that. But we don't, so we work through it covenantally, as we've done, right? So here's our first question. I think it's helpful. Is baptism a covenant sign? Is it a covenant sign? And remember, a covenant sign is an outward representation 
of an inward spiritual reality. Presbyterians, and interestingly, most Baptists will say, yes, yes, okay? Uh, we can go to passages like Acts chapter 2, Colossians 2, 1 Peter 3.21, Romans 6 to support this answer, okay? Baptism functions just like circumcision with respect to confirming God's promises, okay? Here's our second question, and this is, this is where it gets a little trickier. Are the children of believing parents part of the community of the covenant of grace under the new covenant like they were under the old covenant? So here's the thing, right? Nobody is arguing that, that children were not part of the covenant community in Genesis 17. No one is arguing against infant circumcision, okay? Um, the question before us is, since Pentecost... Is that still the case today? Pedo-Baptists will say yes. Credo-Baptists, our, our Baptist friends, will generally want to argue from Jeremiah 31 that the church is exclusively comprised of the community of believers. That's generally the argument. So uh, a believing church is, is the hallmark of Baptist theology. Or, or I should say... Baptist ecclesiology. For us and, and others, the church is made up of believers and their children. Okay? What it really boils down to is a fundamental difference, not in baptism, but in ecclesiology. Okay? Now, as most of you know, this is a profound debate, but at the end of the day, why do we say yes? Why do we say yes, baptize the children? Okay? Um, I personally think it's because we're crusty, obstinate Presbyterians. That's my favorite go-to answer. But there is a better answer. There's more to it than that. Um, we looked at Jeremiah 32. We compared it to Hebrews 6, 10. We know that both uh, the Old Testament and New Testament church were comprised right, of believers and unbelievers. The New Covenant is not a believers-only church. We saw that. We looked at that. There were examples of that. Secondly, when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, we just looked at this. He repeats Genesis 17. The promise is to you and to your children. If there was ever a time to say Christ's body is only for adult believers... That's probably about the worst time to say that the promise is to you and to your children. Peter makes no distinction between the covenants here. He says it's, it's the same. We're carrying it over. Number three, we see the parallel that Paul makes in Colossians 2, right? We just read that. And number four, here's one that we didn't talk about. The majority of baptisms in Acts chapter uh, in Acts and I'm sorry, First Corinthians are household baptisms. Adult professing baptisms. I have a I have a long list of them here. If you want, if you want them all, just come find me afterwards. We I can give you all the, the whole list of them. Um, there are a list of adult professing baptisms in Acts, and then household baptisms that occur in Acts and First Corinthians. Now. <clears throat> The argument is not 
Well, there had to be babies in those houses. I'm sure there were, right? That's probably true. But that's not the argument. The argument is how reflective this baptism is of the language of Genesis 17. Because it's interesting that the church is in a great evangelistic age at this point. Right? Where would you naturally... I'm sorry, where, where you would naturally expect most people to be unbaptized, right? Most have not received the new Trinitarian baptism at this point. So you would expect there to be a lot of adult baptisms. Instead, we see whole households being baptized, and it makes you think of this language. You and your children, and all who dwell in your tent or your household. It sounds like Genesis 17. Now, does this mean all baptized children are saved? No. No, we don't believe that. Just like all circumcised children weren't saved. Receiving a sign of the covenant doesn't save you. Faith is always how a person receives the promises of God. And this, by the way, is a, is a sharp contrast in the teaching of Rome, in the Catholic Church. Right? Rome believes baptism to be salvific. This is why you will see priests in the hospital rushing to baptize sick babies that, that don't have a good prognosis. <clears throat> So, at this point, the common Baptist argument, at least I think in my opinion, tend to fall a little flat. Well, well okay, yeah, but, but when you baptize a kid, he, he doesn't, you know, understand Jeremiah 31, right? I'll, I'll, write, I'll write the law on his heart. Yeah, well, neither did the children being circumcised in the Old Testament. They didn't understand what was going on either, Right? At some point, Isaac, who was circumcised, right? He was a child. He had to make a decision. Choose this day who you will serve. Joshua 24, 15. At some point, all have to make a choice. The, the, the Spirit of God has to work in that person's heart, right? Right? <clears throat> If God gave the sign of the promise to believers and their children in the Old Testament, should we give, and this is the third, question, the third uh, question, by the way, if God gave the sign of the promise to believers and their children in the Old Testament, try to follow me on this. So I'm going I'm to start this question one more time, because this one's a little, kind of a little tricky. If God gave the sign of the promise to believers and their children in the Old Testament, should we give the sign of the promise that he makes to believers and their children in the New Testament to both believers and their children. And we would say with a hearty amen, yes, absolutely. The sign of the covenant promise and the sign and the seal of baptism is made to believers and their children. And so we baptize those little covenant hooligans. I mean children. The blessings from the Lord. All right, so that wraps up baptism. Let's 
turn our attention to the second sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But actually, before we go on to that, does anybody have questions on baptism that pastor can answer for you? Um, <laughs> no, seriously. Does anybody have questions on baptism before we, we jump into the Lord's Supper? And like I said, we're going to go deeper into baptism when we get to that, that portion of it in, um, in the catechism. Awesome. Okay. So, turning our attention to the Lord's Supper, whereas baptism is all about covenantal union, the Lord's Supper is focused on and all about covenantal communion. Okay? The Lord's Supper is the sign and seal of covenantal communion. It is the rite of eating by which we are nurtured in the blessings of the covenant of grace. And in our devotion to the triune God. Turn with me, please, to uh, Luke 22. Luke 22, we're going to be uh, looking specifically at verses 14 through 23. And as with baptism, I don't want to get all into the, the theological nuances here uh, of the Lord's Supper right now. I just want to make some observations regarding Luke 22. Most of us know this passage, I think, pretty well. Uh, this is, you know, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. This is where the last Passover of the Old Covenant um, occurs and the First Supper of the New Covenant happens, and they happen together. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to remember two things. And number one, Jesus' primary concern here is, is really not to teach a theology of the sacraments or, or really even the Lord's Supper, okay? His intention is is to explain the meaning and the significance of his death. Jesus needs his disciples to, to understand this. This is the greatest lecture on the doctrine of the atonement um, that you will find. Jesus is explaining to his disciples why he needs to die and, and what's about to happen. And the second thing that we need to remember is as Jesus is, explains this to his disciples... The, the meaning and the significance of his death, he does so in light of the covenants. You, you can't understand the meaning and the significance of his death apart from what Jesus says he's doing in fulfilling the covenants. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that you can't understand his atonement if you don't understand covenant theology. Because he frames his death in the context of the fulfillment of the covenants. So, Let's read Luke 22. Get there myself. Okay. All right, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among, you, among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me 
is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, the first thing that I want us to pay attention to here is the significance of the setting. The setting. Where is this taking place? And no, I don't just mean in the the upper room. Jesus is somewhere on or near the temple, the temple mound. Okay? And that place has redemptive historical significance. Okay? Now follow me here. Follow me here. <clears throat> Going back in time. Abraham is commanded to take his son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 and sacrifice him there. Right? So Abraham follows the Lord's command, right? He goes up, but just before he's about to plunge the knife in, right, the angel comes down and he stops him. And a ram is provided in Isaac's place, right, as a burnt offering. About a thousand years later, in 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census in violation of Moses' law. And it was also a violation of God's instruction not to trust in chariots or horses, but to trust simply in the Lord. So God sent an angel to destroy the people because of David's sinful distrust. 7,000 people died before God told the angel to stop. Because God showed mercy and spared the rest of his people, specifically Jerusalem, David gave thanks and offering sacrifices for staying the angel's hand. Hang with me here. We're getting there. The land where David offered sacrifices was owned by a man named Ornit the Jebusite. Now, David tried to buy that land from Ornit, but Ornan said, no, he refused. He actually just wanted to give it David to David for free, as well as the, the oxen for the, the offering. Okay? And David says in 2 Samuel 24, he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I really love that verse, actually. So much we could say about that, but that's, that's not what we're telling the story. So David buys the property from, from old Ornan the Jebusite, okay? He does it for 50 shekels of silver. That's actually quite a bit of money, by the way. Um, and he offers the, the sacrifice. Now, comes the big point. In 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, we read this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So, this is the place where the temple is built. It's also Mount Moriah. So to bring this full circle to our Luke 22 passage, Jesus is yards from the temple mound. That means he is yards from the site where God spared Jerusalem from the destroying angel. And about a thousand years before that, he spared Isaac. This is no coincidence. This location, this upper room, is full of redemptive historical significance. Now, let's take a look at our text. And I want us to notice four things that Jesus makes clear here. Number one, Christ's earnest desire to eat the meal in verse 15. 
Christ's earnest desire to eat the meal. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus makes it clear he is eager. He is longing. He makes this statement despite the fact that he knows this meal signifies his suffering. That's striking. You know, most of us, most of us have those events in our lives that, that really trigger those awful memories. Uh, some of those, those thoughts that even wake us up in the middle of the night, right? Could you imagine living your life knowing that memory, that moment was coming? Jesus lived his whole ministry knowing that type of moment, that horrible moment was coming. And yet he says, despite that, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. Despite the cost, despite his suffering, despite the fact that one of you is going to betray me. And the apostles, by the way, they still don't get it. Still oblivious. And they won't fully understand it until that event transpires right in front of their eyes. Here's the second thing. See what verse 15 says about Christ's love for his people. Jesus says he has longed to eat this Passover meal with his disciples despite the fact that one of them would betray him. And of course we all know that's, that's going to be Judas. Judas will betray him. Yet, he still desires to eat with them. Now, I know for a fact that none of us display that level of selfless divine love. What an example we have here in Christ. Because yet, he still loves them. But wait, there's more. During this Passover meal, the disciples are arguing. What are they arguing about? Well, they're, they're, they're arguing about how they're going to protect their master, right? No. Like little boys, they're arguing about who's the greatest, right? So here's Jesus on the most important night of his life, and it's his, despise, his, I'm sorry, his disciples are behaving like a bunch of, of male gorillas pounding their chests, right? But yet... He still loves them. No, Jesus, it's me, right? I'm, I'm the greatest. No, it's me. But wait, there's more. Peter's here. Peter and John were arguably Jesus' two right-hand guys, right? His lieutenants, if you will. And we all know the story, right? Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're going to deny me three times. In fact, one of them is going to be to a, a little girl. A little slave girl. She's going to ask you, do you know Jesus? Little girl. And you're going to be so scared, you're going to say no. And sure enough, that's what happens. Fortunately, fortunately, that's not the end of Peter's story. But yet he still loves them. But wait, there's more. All of the disciples, all of them will eventually abandon him. Listen to Matthew's account of Jesus' arrest. This is Matthew 26, verse 56, uh, 55 and 56, sorry. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture them? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The troops come out. The disciples take off. Jesus, of course, knows all this will happen. And he still longs to eat the Passover with them. Yet, he still loves them. So Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas, mediating a a ridiculous argument, denied by Peter and abandoned by the apostles in his hour of need. Yet, he is still eager to eat this meal with them. And not just eat with them, but share the Passover with them. This is a group of men who who would fail him miserably. But Jesus says, come, sit. Experience the covenantal love of your God. Jesus already knew the hearts of the disciples, just like he knows our hearts. They fail him miserably, just like we fail him in our sin. Yet we see here in this covenantal meal that our hope is not based on our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a testimony of the covenantal love of God. Thirdly, that he will suffer. In verse 15, he ends by saying, I have been eager to do this before I suffer. Jesus is reminding the disciples to anticipate the suffering that he will endure. Jesus has been doing this consistently throughout his ministry. He's been saying, I'm the Messiah. And as the Messiah, I must suffer. And as we said before, it's, it's, it's still not clicking for the disciples. They're still not getting it. So for the last time, Jesus gives it one last shot before everything happens, right? He's trying to tell the disciples that, that what's going to happen tomorrow, it's not an accident. And he's ready. There's nothing wrong in God's plan here. This is ordained. This has been predestined to happen. And really, this is encouraging for the disciples on on the other side of the cross, right? At at the very least, they would be thinking, well, okay, he, he said this would happen. Now, this phrase, before I suffer, it's, it's very important for another reason. Um, you might hear some people say that Jesus was a victim of, of murder. Hey, um, I really don't like that. Now, it's, I suppose it's true in one sense that his death, you know, okay, it was unlawful. Uh, it was unethical. It was immoral, okay? We can say that about the trial process. Uh, even Pilate said he was innocent, right? So his death was not moral, it was not legal. So it was, I suppose, murder in that sense. Um, it was an unlawful taking of life, okay? But it was not murder in the sense that he was a victim, okay? Jesus makes it clear that his death and his suffering was deliberate, okay? He says in John 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In fact, his death comes quickly, uh, comparatively. Crucifixion uh, usually lasted about three or four days, roughly. And the person would normally die because either they couldn't hold themselves up to breathe, they were asphyxiated, or they experienced cardiac arrest due to just general loss of blood. Jesus, on the other hand, is only on on the cross for a few hours. 
In fact, Pilate is surprised when the guards report his death. Uh, when Jesus dies, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. The whole point is that Jesus decided the exact moment when he would lay down his life. Exactly when he would die. His life is not taken from him. His suffering is not unanticipated. It's not accidental. The only people surprised by the suffering and death of Christ are his, his followers. Not Jesus himself. Lastly, and, and we'll end here, Jesus clarifies that he will not eat the Passover again until he eats it with them in the kingdom of God. So he says, in both verse, he says that in both verses uh, 16 and 18. Now, Jesus is making a vow here. He's vowing to never sit down at this ritual meal again until its total fulfillment has occurred and the kingdom of God is established. He's saying when, when we eat this meal again, it will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the kingdom of God is, is consummated. Now remember, the Passover signified two things, right? Israel's departure or their exodus from Egypt, but it also pointed forward to the deliverance from sin and death accomplished through Christ. In fact, another way to say that is, is to speak of Christ's departure or his exodus. Listen to Luke 9, uh, this is verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah right, are talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about his what? His departure, or his exodus in Greek from Jerusalem. They're speaking of his future death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So the Passover pointed back to Israel's exodus, and it pointed forward to Jesus' exodus. Now, Jesus says, you have the Lord's Supper that he will not enjoy again until the kingdom of God, when he eats it with us again in heaven. And we get a picture of that in Luke 12. This is actually, turn with me there, Luke 12. <clears throat> This is verse 37. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now I think a lot of us overlook, overlook something very important in this verse. Jesus is the one who will be serving us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, to be fair, this verse is, is part of a larger passage primarily concerned about believers continuously being ready and prepared for Christ's return, All right? But the saints who are faithful, either till their death or until Christ returns, right, our Master Jesus Christ will have us recline at his table, and he, Christ himself, our Master, will come and serve us. And believe it or not, this is pictured for us Every Lord's Day, when your pastor and your elders, men who have been rightly called and ordained, distribute the elements, we merely function as under-shepherds, pointing to the one 
true glorious shepherd who will serve as our heavenly shepherd who will feed us a glorious feast in heaven. Now, that's everything that Jesus says regarding the Passover. Um, next week, we'll, we'll pick back up again in Luke 22. Uh, let's see, we've gotten through verse 16. Um, and it's at this point that Jesus starts doing something uh, interesting at the Passover meal. Um, and it's, it's making the disciples kind of look over the rim of their glasses a little bit because he adds, he adds something at this point. And we'll look at that next week. Does anybody have any, any questions? Excellent. Okay, let me close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son to live and to die and to inaugurate the new covenant for us, that you have given us these sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we may be reminded of your grace to us, that we may be encouraged in our faith. Pray that you would be with us this Lord's Day in our worship of you, that we may be strengthened and emboldened by your word. Pray that you would be with all the saints here at Heritage. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.